you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And our text is essentially verses 31 through 42. I want to bring in the context by going back to verse 27. Jesus has just told the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah. He says there in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And then verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We have in Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman really a model for evangelism. First, there is the object of evangelism. Jesus crossed cultural and religious boundaries to take up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Since she was a Samaritan, the Jews as a whole were convinced that she was without hope of salvation. And since she was a woman, the Jewish rabbis had rules that prevented them from having a religious conversation with her. And so, so from every point of view, the Jewish culture of that day said that she was not a proper object of evangelism. But Jesus didn't listen to that society's prejudices. He came as the savior of the world, which means his grace is for people of every religion and race and gender. His salvation is not primarily for those people society says are the good people. But Jesus' evangelism to the Samaritan woman is one example of how Jesus regularly witnessed to the kind of people his society said were the least deserving. Well, who does our society say are the least deserving? Perhaps the poor, prisoners, drug addicts, immoral people caught in the webs of sin, Jesus gives us an example of who is to be evangelized when he reaches out to the nobodies of society. And second, there is Jesus' example in the method of evangelism that he uses. 
Jesus' methodology basically lines up with what many today call friendship evangelism. This is evangelism that involves building a friendly relationship with the person we are seeking to bring to the Lord. The goal should be to engage unbelievers in conversations where it is clear we are treating them as real people with real concerns and not allowing society's prejudices to get in the way of being friendly toward them. The Samaritan woman was in great part willing to hear what Jesus had to say to her because he was not treating her in the unloving ways that she expected from a Jew. His friendliness enabled her to let down her guard and actually talk with him. And third, Jesus uses something physical from everyday life as a segue into what he wants to communicate spiritually. We see something similar from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where he takes the idea, the reality of physical birth, and applies it to the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And in the case of the Samaritan woman, he uses water in a well and a thirst for water as an analogy to the salvation that he offers, which quenches spiritual thirst. With both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, there was a tendency to take what Jesus was saying literally and to be thinking only in the physical level. And Jesus masterfully turns the conversation to spiritual matters. This is a gift that good evangelists who follow Christ's example Um, This is a gift that they have and that they use with effectiveness. They engage people in friendly conversations with the conscious goal of bringing them to contemplate, to think about spiritual things. And there are so many things from everyday life that can be connected to spiritual matters if only we are taking the time to think about such connections and to point them out. And fourth, Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman with the nature of true religion. Many, if not most people, are religious, but of course not all religions are worthwhile. In fact, all religions except for the Christian religion are false religions. And naturally the people in these false religions think they are right and they think that their religion will save them. And Jesus was not afraid to to tell the Samaritan woman that Samaritan worship was false worship. Now, he didn't use those exact words, but he also didn't beat around the bush when he declared there in verse 27, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet, at the very same time, Jesus was ready to point out that just having the right religion where you do the right things, that has never been enough for salvation, which means that even the Jewish religion The followers of that religion were not guaranteed to be saved. For as he explains, worship must be in spirit and in truth. This means true worship is from the heart and is in line with the true nature of God as spirit, which means that all true worship must line up with the truth of who God is and how he wants to be worshipped. And that requires knowing the truth as revealed by God himself. And since Jesus is the word of God, Jesus is the revelation of God to whom people must listen if they are to be saved. Notice Jesus doesn't just tell people like like a teacher of religion what to do in order to be saved and to be able to worship God correctly. 
but people need Jesus himself. And now that Jesus has come, you can't know God and worship God without knowing the truth of who Jesus is, and more than that, knowing him with a, uh, with a living faith where you trust in him for salvation. And so Jesus boldly announced to Nicodemus that there is salvation only through this one who is both son of man and son of God. This one who has been given to the world in order to be lifted up as an atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. To the Samaritan woman who was looking to a coming Messiah for salvation, Jesus announced, I who speak to you am he. And so true evangelism always points people to Jesus as Savior calls them to believe upon him for eternal life. And fifth, Jesus gives us an example of how in evangelism we must not forget the bad news that prepares the objects of evangelism to thirst for the good news. Since Jesus is a savior from sin, remember John the Baptist announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And since the only way to have this Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, as your Savior from sin is to receive him as your Savior by faith, it should be obvious that anyone who would be saved through Jesus must know that he is a sinner. Why would a person go to Jesus for salvation if he didn't think he needed salvation? And yet you hear evangelistic presentations, so-called evangelistic presentations, in which nothing is said about sin or at least very little. And you wonder what they think salvation involves. Usually the answer to this comes out when they portray the salvation Jesus offers as a salvation from life's troubles. He will give meaning to your life, they say. He will bring joy in the midst of life's struggles. And of course, if you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven. And the impression too often is that all you have to do is just believe the fact that Jesus was a real person who died and rose again, and you can have this salvation. What I would point out is that this is not the salvation from sin that Jesus offers. It makes sense that if you think salvation doesn't involve sin, then there's not going to be a call to repentance. A failure to understand that the salvation we need and the the salvation that Christ offers is from sin. That's why too often people talk about salvation but there's not a clear presentation of the fact that our sin makes us worthy of God's wrath. And that what Jesus did on the cross was to satisfy God's justice as he took the wrath our sins deserve upon himself. And when the nature of salvation is properly understood, then we can understand the true nature of faith. What a sinner is doing in accepting Christ as Savior is trusting in Christ's saving work as the basis for being right with God. Saving faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone as the basis for God forgiving our sins and accepting us as righteous in his sight. Salvation is from sin and requires a sinner confessing his sin and trusting Christ to deal with his sin. It's all about sin. And Jesus gives us an example of this perspective when he confronts the Samaritan woman's sin. Now, confront is perhaps too strong of a word. He's not harsh with her. He also doesn't just declare her to be a sinner and then walk away 
to leave her to, to wallow in her guilt. No, he leads her along in a way designed for her to see her sin, and yet in an atmosphere of gentleness that encourages her to admit it and to receive salvation. The obvious sin in her life is that she is living with a man who is not her husband. And what Jesus doesn't do is instructive. Jesus doesn't jump all over her and make sure she knows that she's committing sexual immorality. As a religious woman familiar with the law of God, the Samaritans had the Pentateuch. They believed that that was the only relevant scriptures. I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible that include Exodus and Leviticus and and Deuteronomy, the the books of the law. And she knows um, having those books, she knows better than to be living with a man who is not her husband. And so Jesus doesn't rub it in. Also relevant to the situation is her confessing Jesus to be a prophet. By this, she is admitting that what he has said about her is true. She knows that Jesus knows her sin. And she's not mad. She's not defensive toward him. In fact, she tells her fellow Samaritans in verse 29... Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And as a result, they were coming out of the town and they were heading toward Jesus, presumably to hear his testimony and to see and hear for themselves whether or not he was the Messiah. What I would point out in connection with this rather long introduction is that the work that Jesus is doing is drawing sinners to salvation. Jesus has witnessed to the Samaritan woman, and she in turn is witnessing to her neighbors. And in all of this, you understand, Jesus is accomplishing the work that he was sent to do. Jesus, he, Jesus explains the nature of his work in the more immediate context of talking with his disciples. And let me say, before we get into this exchange um, that, they, that they have here with Jesus, that every writer has his own style, and John is not exempt from this. And what we see with John is how he likes to record the instances in which people misunderstood Jesus. Again and again, the Apostle John writes, uh, the people that he writes about are stuck in the physical realm. They have no understanding, at least initially, of spiritual things, and they miss Jesus' spiritual lessons. For example, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus, his, his turning of the water into wine, we are told, was a sign and therefore pointed to spiritual realities. And yet, for many that day, what happened, what, what, what happened as far as they were concerned was no more important than having good wine to drink. And when Jesus cleansed the temple of all of the commerce that was being done there and spoke of the destruction of the temple and it's being raised up. Most who were there and witnessed what he did and said, thought he was talking about the earthly temple and totally missed that he was talking about himself as the fulfillment of the temple and predicting his death and resurrection. When Jesus discusses with Nicodemus the need to be born again, Nicodemus thinks Jesus is talking about entering a second time into his mother's womb and coming out again. And when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman about living water and of water that will quench one's thirst forever, she's thinking about water from Jacob's well. She's thinking about the welcome prospect of not having to draw any more water from a well. Totally missing the fact that Jesus is talking about spiritual thirst. 
and the quenching that God gives through the saving work of the Holy Spirit. And so now in the same vein, the disciples are, seem oblivious to what Jesus is doing. They see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and yes, they marveled at it, we are told, but that was it. And then she leaves to go tell her friends about Jesus, and all the disciples can think about is that they've come back from Sychar with groceries, and it's time to eat, and surely Jesus is hungry, and he needs to eat, and that they were urging him to eat indicates that they were pressing the matter with him, probably noticing that he was preoccupied with ministry, but not understanding and not appreciating the ministry that he was doing. All they can think about is how they need to take care of Jesus and get him to eat. And so, yes, they are being loving. They have good motives, but they're missing the big picture of the spiritual miracles that are taking place around them. Jesus replies to them in a way similar to what he has been doing, makes a statement that can be taken in a literal, physical, earthly way, and yet is ultimately loaded with spiritual meaning for those who have ears to hear and who are paying attention. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples show how completely oblivious they are to spiritual things in in that moment by asking, has anyone brought him something to eat? And this is when Jesus makes a statement that forces the disciples to lift their heads out of the sand and face the deeper reality of which Jesus is speaking. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus is using food as a mini parable to make a spiritual point. And let's think about food from an earthly point of view for a moment. Food is anything we eat to sustain our lives. Without food, we would eventually waste away and die. And so food is a necessity in our lives. Any thing in this creation that is alive knows that it must eat and therefore puts forth energy and strategy to acquire food for itself and when an organism does not have food god has created a mechanism within that creature that forces him to realize his need and that mechanism is what we call hunger and hunger is a protective mechanism that keeps us strong and healthy it's related to the fact that food is a necessity for life And as part of his care for us, God has created us with bodies that tell us when we need food. It's also the case that God has created us in such a way that our relationship to food is that we find it enjoyable and satisfying. When we are hungry and then have food to eat, there is a mechanism in our body that tells us a good thing has happened. Your body is getting what it craved and you are made to feel satisfied. And not only that, but God has created food to taste good. And the result is that eating food is enjoyable. But think about how things could be just theoretically. Imagine for a moment food is just simply something that we put into our stomachs through a hatch that we open or through a tube. And we just put some food in there every few hours Or else, if we didn't do that, we would suddenly come to a halt like a toy whose batteries have gone dead. We we put in the food, and we find that as long as we do that, we stay alive. Nothing more and nothing less. So that food is simply fuel 
that is inserted into us and there's nothing to taste, there's nothing to enjoy, there's no sense of hunger or satisfaction related to food. Food is just fuel that helps us to stay alive and keep going. But that's not how it is. The way God has ordained the role of food in our lives is just ripe for spiritual analogies that the Lord here references. Last time we considered the spiritual lessons related to water and thirst, and the lessons related to food and hunger are similar. They point to our sense of need and to what God does to satisfy our needs. It's been stated, and I think rightly so, that Jesus is thinking here about Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In the context, thinking now of of that particular passage, in the context of the Lord providing for and sustaining the lives of his people during the wilderness wandering, Moses reminds the people with these words. He says, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this verse is very applicable to the scenario that I have highlighted of how Jesus' audience again and again is only thinking of earthly life and is failing to understand the importance of spiritual things. What Moses is highlighting there in in Deuteronomy 8 is that while God can and does sustain us physically what he provides for us spiritually is so much greater than earthly food and drink and and clothing this verse is calling God's people to think beyond the physical realm yes it was God who provided them with food for Old Testament Israel that was obvious for us it is not as obvious Right When we want food, we go to the store, or we grow it in our gardens, and we have food readily available, and so it's easy for us to forget that God provides our food. We can lose sight of the fact that it is God who provided the means for us to make money to buy food, and it was also God who blessed the farmers and ranchers with the weather and the water and the skill to be able to grow and raise our food. For Israel, it was clear that God provided their food. For one thing, they were in a wilderness, really a desert. And they knew what it was to hunger. There was no food readily available. And there were times that God let them go hungry for a while. He allowed them to sense their need and to realize they can't meet their own needs. And it was then that God gave them manna. Now he also provided meat for them more than once in a miraculous way. But the focus in Deuteronomy 8 is on the manna that the Lord provided. And it was manna that was the main thing that sustained their lives during their wilderness wandering. And what is highlighted is that this was a food they did not know. In other words, this was no ordinary food. It could not be explained in an earthly way. There was no earthly source. There was no earthly way to make it. It was food directly from God sent from heaven. And so when the people ate it, there was no question it was God who was giving them this food and sustaining their lives. And Moses reminds them of this, but there's something more that Moses wants to get across. He says that the goal of God's provision of manna was to point to something greater than earthly food and earthly life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Life is not to 
be defined narrowly as earthly life sustained by earthly food, even when we thank God for the food that he gives. No, there is life that comes through the word or words of God. There's spiritual life that comes through knowing and believing God's word. In the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, the words of God are the words of life. For God's word tells us how to have fellowship with him, how to experience eternal life. Yes, a life that coincides for a time with earthly life, but then continues beyond earthly life and is ultimately about unending life, a life of friendship and fellowship with God. So what does God's word tell us about how to get this eternal life? Well, God's word reveals to us our sinfulness and that our sins deserve God's wrath and judgment. And God's word reveals to us his God's, God's love and grace in providing a savior for us who will atone for our sins and reconcile us with God. And God's word reveals how we can lay hold of this salvation and make it our own, which is by faith, which the Bible explains and defines for us. Faith is a trusting in God to save us from the consequences of our sin through his Messiah, while at the same time, true faith involves a repudiating of any trust in ourselves. And faith shows itself when you acknowledge that you need him, that is the Lord Jesus, and then receive him as your Savior. And so in some, Moses was calling God's people to recognize that we have far greater needs than food for earthly life. And yes, God provides even that, and for that we should be thankful. But there is a spiritual realm where our food is not manna or meat or grain or vegetables or fruit. Life is fellowship with God. It comes only in the way of paying attention to God's word and obeying what he says. In particular, what he says about how to enjoy eternal life by means of faith in the Christ. And with these things in the background, we are now prepared to explain the nature of Christ, saying that his food is to do, is to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. The idea is that analogous to how we feel this need to eat food. Jesus felt a need to obey his father. Obeying God was not something optional to his way of thinking, but something absolutely necessary. And furthermore, there was an inner drive analogous to hunger, prompting and pushing him to obey his father. And in addition, just as food satisfies us and the eating of it is enjoyable, Jesus found satisfaction and joy in obeying God. To do God's will and to accomplish his work was to Jesus more important than earthly food, for life to him was about loving and serving God. I know that you've experienced food giving you a sense of sustenance. You feel energy pervade your body as you're blood sugar rises as you feel your hunger subside but have you experienced the sustenance of spiritual hunger being satisfied there's an energy that sweeps over us when we experience spiritual things when we find our hearts filled with joy perhaps someone who is deathly ill is healed or a broken relationship that seemed hopeless is mended a guilty conscience that was bowed down in the dust is released there are times when the satisfaction we feel in our hearts is greater than the satisfaction that any food can give. 
And then we begin to understand something of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus understood and lived out Moses' perspective perfectly. What he is describing is the capacity to see that serving God is more important than serving my body. Obeying God is more important than making sure that my bodily desires are satisfied. Accomplishing the work that God has given us to do is more important than eating food. Yes, we need to eat food if we are to stay alive here on this earth. And even Jesus will take time to eat. And we are not to take from Jesus' words the idea that eating food is to be looked down upon as something unspiritual. All things are good if they are received with thankfulness and done to the glory of God. The bigger picture is that Jesus was focused on ministry, on spiritual things, while the disciples were focused on who got the rye bread with the two fish and who got the barley bread with the three fish. They were losing sight of the important things that were going on, what was happening right before their eyes while they thought about their growling stomachs. What was going on was the salvation of Samaritans. And not only was Jesus witnessing and drawing sinners to faith, but so was this Samaritan woman. And yet these disciples don't even seem to notice. Let's take stock of what kind of people we are. Are we earthly people? Are we earthly people consumed with the cares of this world, just focused on earthly wants and needs? Or are we people consumed with the Great Commission and seeing Christ exalted as Savior? Without neglecting your earthly needs, do you realize the greater things of God's kingdom? Is your hunger and the satisfying of it only about grocery stores and kitchens and restaurants and gardens? Or do you have a hunger to serve God? The Lord here is calling you and me to evaluate our priorities and to consider what is the true meaning of life. Amen. Let us pray. Great God and Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his commitment to obeying you, to coming to this earth to accomplish his work, which was to gather sinners to himself, to gather sinners out of this sinful world. And Father, it's so easy for us to lose sight of what is really important. So easy for us to just be earthly creatures focused on earthly things. Father, give us eyes to see what true life is about, that life is not just food and drink, but life is, is that which is connected with your word. Life is, is knowing you. Life is serving you. Life is bringing others to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, accomplishing your work, obeying you and doing your will. Father, may we see and experience that greater life, that eternal life that is above mere earthly life. So Lord, help us to see what is really important. And uh, may the decisions that we make, may our everyday lives reflect our love for you. And and may we, Lord, find it uh, a great joy, very satisfying, Lord, to see others come to saving faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.